And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and we are going to continue, or excuse me, John 15, and we are going to continue our study of one of the most important passages for understanding the spiritual life. John chapter 15, and the analogy of the vine. I have spent a lot of time this week thinking about this. It may be a while before we get out of this passage, the more I get into it the more I am impressed with what is here and how many problems there are in interpreting this particular passage. One of the reasons, too, that I'm going to spend some time on this, it seems like this is going to be the year of the Holy Spirit in my life. Just to give you a little little warning, it seems like in in, uh, March I'm supposed to go to Cincinnati for two or three days, we're going to have a mini-conference with some of the pastors who come in October to Los Angeles. And at that conference, suddenly they decided to skip. Instead of doing something on tongues, they wanted me to do something on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then in May, I'm supposed to go to the Doctrinal Teaching Pastors Conference in Kansas City, and I have two sessions to give a couple of papers on uh, walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ. And then, preview of coming attractions, you'll hear a little more about tonight, is that I've been invited to come teach a group of pastors in Kazakhstan. That's over there, kind of north of Afghanistan, northwest of China, the edge of civilization. (laughs) And uh, two or three of us are going over there, George Meisinger and a couple of others, because these pastors have no training. There's no Bible schools over there. They just, I don't even, I'm not even sure they have the scripture in their own Kazakh language. Russian is a second language for them, so everything will be done in Russian. I'll have a translator, of course. I won't be speaking in tongues. (laughs) But the subject for that is the spiritual life. Now, the only way I'm going to accomplish all of that is if we do a lot of double duty on things. So you're going to get a lot of instruction this year on the spiritual life. It's interesting, this last year we spent four months on Galatians 5, walking by means of the Spirit, tied it into Ephesians 5, tied that into Romans 8, and we're going to do some more of that so that when we come to John 15 now, in our study of the vine, you should have all of that in your frame of reference. Since we don't have any visitors with us this morning, and most of you have been around for a while, some of this should be making some sense to you, and it should start coming together. But we're going to back up just a little bit, try to put a few more pieces of the puzzle together. We do have people who listen to this John series over the Internet. They might not have that frame of reference, so they can go order the tapes on Galatians 5, Walking by the Spirit. But we do have people who listen over the Internet. At 10 o'clock last night, I had to field a call with a few technical questions over the exegesis of John 15. So there are people out there who who do listen and who do ask a lot of detailed questions. And and I'm not talking about pastors either. This is a very controversial passage. One of the things that has hit me as I meditated on this this last week, I was talking with a friend of mine in Houston and telling him some of the insights. And his first knee-jerk response when I quoted verse 1 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, his knee-jerk reaction was to go back to the Old Testament where the vine is uh, used as a a, a representation of Israel. Israel is the vine. Now what happens is, now we're going to get technical here, I'll show you how presuppositions affect theology and how slippery some of this can be. If you go out and you pick up your standard commentary and you don't know who wrote it, but you pick up some of the key commentaries, somebody like William Hendrickson or John Stott or some of the others, that are written by somebody from a Calvinist or Reformed perspective, somebody who has as their interpretive framework for Scripture covenant theology. In covenant theology, there is no distinction made between Israel and the church. It is what is called replacement theology. Tommy talked about that when he was here last summer in, in the prophecy conference. You have replacement theology, so the church replaces Israel. So what happens is you, if, you, if the author of this commentary is coming to this passage and he puts on his glasses, which say covenant theology, then he's going to see a continuity between the vine in the Old Testament and the vine in John 15. Now, why is that a problem? The vine in the Old Testament represents Israel, God's covenant people, who are comprised of believer and unbeliever alike. So if you come to John 15 and that is your assumption in your presuppositional woodpile, then you're going to have some problems. Because this is going to rear its ugly head and affect how you interpret the passage. And so when you come to pass, when you think that the vine contains believer and unbeliever, then you look at the, the fact that there are branches that are taken away. It seems in verse 2, we've dealt with the exegesis there and shown that it really means to lift up. You come down to verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. You who abide in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. And you're going to think this is not a believer because the vine contains believer and unbeliever. So all of a sudden now you're going to assume this is talking about believer and unbeliever and that the subject is salvation. Now that in turn, I'm going to show you why theology is so important here and why most people don't think very deeply or not trained to think deeply. They're going to make mistakes. Abide is the key word here. Now, if you're going to look at John 15 and say the context here is salvation, then abide is going to be related to salvation, not fellowship. So if abide is a salvation term, now we take the abide word, meno in the Greek, and we go over to John, 1 John, where abide is used seven or eight times, and we take with us this salvation presupposition, then all of a sudden all those passages in 1 John now have to do with salvation instead of fellowship, which makes the overall purpose of 1 John to be salvation and not fellowship. Now, in the history of interpretation, 1 John is one of the most difficult epistles in the New Testament to interpret. It has all those passages like, the one who is born of God does not sin. Well, wait a minute, what does that mean? Especially when in 1 John 1 it says, if you say you do not sin, you're a liar and you deceive yourself. So obviously John understands we sin. We get into some real difficult problems. <coughs> and there are two schools of thought on 1 John. One is that the overall purpose of 1 John is, is what's called tests of fellowship, carnal versus spiritual believer. The other view is that First John's really, John's really talking about two different kinds of people, unbeliever versus believer. Now, if you take, that, take it that it's tests of salvation, that is in line with covenant, reformed theology and lordship salvation. Every person in lordship salvation, lordship salvation says you have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord to, to be saved and that if you are a true believer you will necessarily produce certain kinds of fruit in your life. Necessarily is the key word there. 
But that's because, go back to the fruit. I mean, the analogy here, that if you're a true believer, abiding equals believing, then you produce fruit. You see how this fits together. And it affects everything in Scripture. And that's why you have to understand that if you believe certain things, it's interesting, birds of a feather flock together. Everybody believes in a free grace salvation as opposed to lordship, takes First John as fellowship, and takes abiding as fellowship. This is talking about spiritual life, not salvation. Lordship, Reformed Covenant theology people take, take John 15 and 1 John as tests of salvation. You see, your theological presuppositions are going to come in and affect how you interpret the passage. But what has to happen is you have to start with the terminology and you have to move through that, which we have done, showing that in John, phrases like, in me, are not equivalent to the Pauline phrase, in Christ. That in me, for John, refers to relationship. Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And that's not talking about some kind of judicial positional relationship, which is what Paul means by in Christ. So obviously, John, that, that indicates that. And then if abide means believe, then if we do a word substitution down in, in verse 4, believe in me and I, Jesus would be saying, believe in me and I believe in you. We've seen that that's a problem as well as several other passages, and we dealt with that in detail a couple of weeks ago. So what I want to do before we go any further into John 15 is to do a review, and maybe it's new for some of you, to do uh, an analysis or summary of the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is one of those technical theological words that fly right past some people. They're not sure what it means, um, but it is used in the Scripture. You have phrases like sanctify, be sanctified, uh, and used in both Old and New Testament. So we need to understand this term sanctification, and I'll just give you a hint, sanctification is just, and generally, if we're talking about spiritual life, sanctification is, in a sense, just nothing more than the spiritual life. But it's more than that, that's just going to reduce it down to one basic element. So when you think of sanctification, you might think in terms of Christian life, but that's not totally true either, as we're going to see. So we're going to begin with the first point, which is terminology. Terminology. The first word is kadosh, K-A, I'll spell it out for you in English. That's Q-A-D-D-O-S-H. Uh, kadosh, or kadash, K-Q-A-D-D-A-S-H. Kadash, and the Hebrew is hagiadzo. Let me write that in English for you on the overhead. Let me see, Q, kadash, and hagiadzo. Now, what's important about these words is their basic meaning. Kadash is normally translated holy, or in many places it's translated holy. When you use it as a verb, it means to, to be holy or to be sanctified. But we've seen several times that this word holy is one of those old English words that, that we use so much in Christian circles that it doesn't always carry a lot of of meaning with it. Hagiazo is from the um, Greek noun hagias, which means holy, set apart, sanctified. And that's the root meaning. Holy is, is set apart. And the interesting thing, when I was in first year Hebrew or second year Hebrew, when we started doing word studies, this was the first word we had to go home and do a word study on. And that's because it is so significant to understand the spiritual life. I mean, you have people in some circles who are, call themselves the holiness church, and they emphasize holiness, and they always em tend to emphasize this concept of, of moral purity, that that's what holiness means. That's not what holiness means. That's just a secondary idea. In fact, one of the, if you take the Hebrew word kadash, and you look at the uh, participle, which our noun form, uh, Kadesh, it referred to temple prostitutes. Temple prostitutes. 
a male temple prostitute or a, uh, a female temple prostitute. Now, how does that jive with our idea of moral purity? Because the temple prostitute had dedicated their life to the service of God. There's our key word. They were set apart to the service of their God. That is the root meaning of Kadash and Hagiadzo, is this concept of being set apart to the service of God. So when we talk about sanctification, we're not talking about becoming sinless. So you get into your Pentecostal churches, your holiness Pentecostal movement, thought that they were going to go for ultimate, or what they call final sanctification. That there would be a stage, Wesley called it perfectionism, that there would be a stage in this life, in your spiritual experience, in your Christian life, when you would go through some sort of experience that would finally free you from sin and elevate you to this higher plane. Sometimes it's called the higher Christian life, the victorious Christian life, ultimate sanctification, when you could actually live on a sinless plane. And part of this has as its root problem a misunderstanding of the word holy. It doesn't have the idea of purity. Now, I think that a good word for us to use is integrity. Integrity, because it has that idea of uprightness. And the holiness of God relates to both His righteousness and His justice. And, of course, when you realize that God is absolutely perfect and there's no sin in Him, then you begin to bring in a denotation of sinlessness or purity. But that's not the core meaning of the word holy. So that's our little etymological lesson for this morning. And for, so that will make those of you who had some grateful you had your coffee so you could stay awake. But we have to define our terms so we understand what the Scripture is actually talking about. So the words in, in, in uh, Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew is kadash, Hebrew is, I mean, Greek is hagiadzo, holiness. First Thessalonians 4, 7 says that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He has called us for the purpose of sanctification. So what does sanctification mean then? Sanctification is the process whereby the believer is set apart to God for service. The process whereby the believer is set apart to God for service. That's when we're talking about sanctification in terms of the, uh, the spiritual life. Now, one thing I want you to notice, you look at the verse up on the overhead, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. The purpose of impurity. I want you to I want to make a point about that word impurity is the Greek word looks like this in the Greek akatharsia a k a t h I think this is an omicron o r s i a akatharsia now, what does this mean, uncleanness? Well, this prefix here, the A here, is called the alpha privative, and it's roughly equivalent to the English word un. It's a negative, un. Kathosia, katharos, katharizo are all the noun, the verb form. First John 1 John 1.9 uses the noun, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, katharizo, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the word clean. Well, that tells us right away that this word, akathosia, is a central concept in sanctification. What renders the believer unclean is sin. And that has to be dealt with. Now, if you look at our passage here in John 15, you look down to verse 3. See, you probably didn't notice this. I made a point of this, but we didn't bring it out too clearly. In verse 3, you are already clean. That's the word katharos. It's the noun, katharos. And so immediately this tells us we're talking about something to do with sanctification. But there it tells us that we're already clean. That is salvation. So there is some sense that at the point of salvation that the believer becomes sanctified. 
And as we will see, we call this positional sanctification. At the point of salvation, we are legally cleansed from all of our sin. Legally, judicially. Yet we still sin afterwards, post-salvation sin. That's why you have to use 1 John 1, 9, when God's faithful and just and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is post-salvation cleansing. So there we see the cleansing can relate to either phase 1 cleansing or phase 2 cleansing, either salvation cleansing or in terms of our day-to-day experience dealing with sin after salvation. So this is the issue here is, is sanctification, which is the process by which God sets us apart for spiritual service. So when we talk about progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification, and that's, those are the key words, what we're talking about is the Christian life. We're talking about how to live the Christian life. And one of my little pet peeves is that we don't identify how to live the Christian life very well. We go out and we tell people, and usually what you get in churches is, Pastors tell you how to live a clean life, be moral, do good, do this and do that. And that has very little, if anything, to do with sanctification. Sanctification in the spiritual life is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps morality. And that's exactly how most theological systems, Calvinism, Lutheranism, Wesleyanism, all basically stayed with a Roman Catholic view of the spiritual life. They brought grace in at salvation, but then they reverted back to a morality basis for the spiritual life. Now, I'm not saying that Christian life is immoral, but I'm saying that morality is for believer and unbeliever alike. The church-age spiritual life is uniquely based and energized and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes a difference, and that's what we're going to see in our overall look at sanctification this morning. This concept of abiding in Christ, fellowship, is central to understanding the whole process of sanctification. And we must understand that this isn't some experience. You go back and you read certain literature. You go down, pick up devotional literature. Often it's influenced by what was called in the 19th century the holiness movement. There was a movement in England, came over to the United States, called the Keswick Movement. That's spelled K-E-S. W-I-C-K, the W is silent in the English pronunciation, the Keswick movement. It was in the context of both of those things that you had, uh, uh, kind of linked together, and some of the same people spoke at both conferences. You had what was called the Niagara Bible Conferences that met up, at, obviously not just at Niagara, but they also met in New York City and up in Northfield, Mass., and in some other places. And the key players were people like Dwight Moody, uh, Cyrus Ingerson. Uh, Schofield, Lewisburg Chafer, uh, later on people like Harry Ironside uh, were key speakers there. So you see our heritage, our doctrinal heritage through Dallas Seminary, the Bible College movements, Moody Bible Institute, all this has its roots and has been influenced by the terminology in the Keswick and the Holiness Movement. The interesting thing is we don't mean the same thing. Because the problem with the holiness movement was that they interpreted this higher life thing through experience. How do you know that you're having fellowship with Christ? Because I've had this experience. I went, I struggled with sin, and finally, I, you know, you, you, something happens, you have this encounter, have a vision, some kind of intuitive experience. How do you know it was God? I just know. It's so real. Their experience then defines and interprets Scripture. And so you have this bump up to this higher level of spirituality because they were interpreting the Holy Spirit in terms of subjective emotion. And finally, when I get worked up enough in some sense to where I can, I can overcome, then I can be uh, a victorious Christian and live the higher life. So that was always interpreted in terms of some kind of experience. That's why I keep making the point in all of this that the criteria that we see in these passages is always objective. There may be some subjective elements, but that's not the ultimate criteria. Jesus says, if you look down, we'll see this in verse 7, if you abide in me, that's fellowship with Christ as we've seen, and I abide, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. 
There is our objective standard. It is the Word of God abiding in us. How do you know if you're living the Christian life? Because you look at the precepts, the principles, the promises, and the procedures outlined in God's Word, and that tells you. Notice when I say that, I make it a point to add in procedures. Procedures. It's method. It's how you do it. It's not just what you do. It's how you do it. Because the right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. And just because you're living a moral life doesn't mean it counts anything for your spiritual life. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And we have seen in our study of Galatians 5 that you can do the right thing on the basis of the sin nature. The Galatians were moral people. They had been influenced by the Judaizers. The Judaizers came into Galatia after Paul and said, if you want to really live a spiritual life, then you have to go back and you have to abide by the Mosaic Law. What were they saying? You have to be moral according to the principles in the Mosaic Law. So the problem in Galatia wasn't the immorality like you have over in Corinth. The problem in Galatia was they were moral. But Paul says you're walking according to the flesh. And it's ultimately going to end up in sin. So we know about the Lord. The Scripture always emphasizes that knowledge of the Lord and knowledge of the spiritual life is ultimately grounded in clear, empirical, objectifiable information. Look at 1 John 1.1 up on the screen. uh, John says in his introduction, what was from the beginning... Notice what he says about what was from the beginning. That's Jesus Christ. We saw the same terminology in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. So what was from the beginning is the Word, the Logos. What we have heard with our ears, it's empirical data. What we have seen with our eyes, we saw this. It wasn't some internal mystical experience. There was a movie done on the life of Christ back came out in the late 70s, and one of the big complaints from conservatives was that after Jesus rose from the dead, after the resurrection, at the end of the movie, you just heard a voice. The disciples are all in the upper room, but you don't see Jesus physically, bodily, walk into the room as a resurrected Christ. What you see is just a voice. It's pure subjectivism. See, that's how modern liberal theology has interpreted religion. It's just, how, it's just what goes on inside you. It's purely private. It's intuitive. It's mystical. Whatever it may be. But it is not objectifiable, measurable reality. But that's just the opposite of what Scripture claims. John says it was what we heard. It, it's, it's objectifiable. It's verifiable. There were eyewitnesses. We heard what he said. We saw him with our eyes. We beheld him. Our hands handled him. Thomas went up and put his hand in the, in the nail prints. There, it's objectifiable data. It, it, it's not some subjective mystical experience. Verse 2, And the life was manifested, and we have seen, and we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, what did John just say? He said that fellowship with the apostles is based not upon an experience, but is based upon belief in information, in certain data, didn't he? What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. You have to believe what we tell you to have fellowship with us. Fellowship is based on apostolic message, not a common experience. See, this is the problem with the ecumenical movement. is that we've all had some kind of religious experience, so all let's get together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, and we'll just have a wonderful religious experience together and go home feeling good this morning. Isn't God wonderful? Well, that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that there is an apostolic succession. Not the physical hand-to-head, empty hand-to-empty head succession of the Roman Catholic Church. It is an apostolic succession of apostolic doctrine. That is how the early church viewed apostolic succession. In the first four centuries, it was a succession of apostolic teaching, not a succession of apostolic hand-touching. 
It wasn't physical, it was content. And so what John tells us in 1 John 1 through 3 is if you want to have fellowship with the apostles, and then you can have fellowship with God, but you can only have fellowship with the apostles if you believe their message, which is based on, it, on an objectifiable content. And that is then the basis for fellowship with God the Father. So this is the point of sanctification. It is the process whereby the believer is set apart to God for service. Now, there are three stages of sanctification. This is point two. There are three stages of sanctification. When, when we talk about God has a plan for your life, this is the plan. It's a blueprint. It doesn't mean that God's plan for a person over on this side of the congregation is different from the plan over here. Now, there may be details in terms of God's sovereign will or God's... Uh, uh, individual will for one person's life over another's. That's, we're not talking about that when we say God's will for your life. We're talking about the fact that God has laid out a blueprint for your life and for my life because God's plan... Remember, salvation and sanctification are not ends in themselves. You are saved from something to something. It is a means to an end. Sanctification is to make you ready to serve God. It is also a means to an end. The trouble is, most of us think that, boy, I'm saved, that's it. Or in, in some systems, I'm sanctified and that's it. We forget that it's for a purpose. And so the, we have a, a plan. God has laid out a blueprint for our lives. And this we call the three stages of sanctification and also the three stages of salvation. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one, we have salvation. What we normally talk of is entry into heaven, justification. When we come to the cross, it happens in an instant in time. It is not a process. It is not the same thing as progressive sanctification. This was the old problem that entered into the theology in the early Middle Ages is that the spiritual life and justification are identical. That sanctification... Now, for those of you who are a little more advanced, for you babies, you won't get this. Sanctification... What is the relationship between sanctification and justification? In Roman Catholic theology, they are identical. They are identical. In Roman Catholic theology, justification and sanctification are both progressive. You get a little more grace every time you come to the Mass. Every time you participate in one of the, um, uh, one of the sacraments, you get a little more grace. It's progressive. And you get a little more merit from the treasury of merit in Jesus until eventually, and who knows when, and nobody knows, and, and you could do it forever and ever, and they don't know if you ever get enough. Justification isn't a moment in time. It is a process. Now, that was Middle Ages. Now, the problem you get with... See, this is the problem in Lordship Salvation, is Lordship Salvation identifies sanctification too closely with justification as well. See, they're two separate things. The problem with holiness theology is it separated them too much. So that you could have justification at the cross, and then you have to have a second work of grace, or in some systems a third work of grace, before you were bumped up high enough to really have the spiritual life. They separated them. You had to have two different works. You got one thing at the cross, and you got something else later on. But there is, there's a distinction, but one grows out of the other. But they are not identical. Justification happens at an instant in time when you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Faith alone in Christ alone. At that instant, you are justified. Then you enter into the spiritual life. This is the growth phase. Now, you may not grow any. See, the problem, when, when you identify sanctification too closely with justification, you argue that if you're justified, you're going to automatically grow, produce fruit. That's lordship salvation, and then they reverse that, no fruit, no salvation. In other words, if you don't look the way I think you ought to look, then you're not really a believer, brother. And then you have real problems when you go out like, like one pastor did, and, 
and one of his childhood friends, and when they were in high school, they'd go out and do beach evangelism in Southern California. And then after college, his friend decided to be an agnostic and rejected God. And now he says, well, how could he have ever been a believer? He must have never been a believer. And so you, you, that's what's called backloading the gospel with works. If he doesn't have the fruit that I think he ought to have a fruit, and see, whatever happens, you become fruit inspectors and you start trying to quantify this fruit, what it is, and you start determining the assurance of salvation is based on fruit instead of the promise of God that if I believe, I have eternal life. So phase two is the spiritual life, and phase three is glorification when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. We also call this positional sanctification for phase one, progressive sanctification for phase two, and ultimate sanctification for phase three. They refer to the same things. Positional sanctification describes our position in Christ, our legal standing in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We're a new creature. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are cleansed. We are saved forever. We are positionally with Him, and so we are positionally sanctified. This means that at the point of salvation, we are freed from the penalty of sin. That means we have an eternal destiny in heaven and no longer under the condemnation to go to the lake of fire. The spiritual life, phase two, is sometimes called progressive or experiential sanctification. This is what we refer to now in our right circle diagram, the old bottom circle diagram. This is the progress, our spiritual life progress, as we grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. This is the thing that always bothers me, is that the role of the pastor, he's the chef. He goes out and buys the food, he cooks it, he prepares it. He's the one who provides the nourishment to the sheep so that they can grow to spiritual maturity. That's the goal. My job is not to motivate you. My job is not to entertain you. My job is not to come up here and make you feel good about Jesus. My job is to teach you the Word of God so that you can grow. Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow by it. It is the Word that it produces growth. And the goal of you, the, your goal for being here is to feed on the Word of God so that you can grow spiritually, to take it in, to learn it, to assimilate it into your thinking, to let your thinking be transformed, renewing your mind so that you can think like Christ thinks Respond to life situations as Christ would have you respond so that you can grow and advance in your spiritual life. It is a process. It is progressive. It is experiential. We call it being, and we are freed from the power of sin in that process. Only as you learn the Word of God do you learn how to use 1 John 1 9 so that you can be cleansed from post salvation sin and so that you can have principles of doctrine to apply so that you can avoid sin and operate on positive volition. And then ultimate salvation, it's only when we're dead and physically dead, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, that we are finally freed from the presence of sin. So we have positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. This is the blueprint. The goal is glorification of God. Why have we done all? This? Why has God done all of this? It is to glorify Him. The goal is not to be in heaven. The goal is glorification. Now we're going to look at the, the three phases in a slightly different way. Under the category point three, the goal of sanctification is to glorify God. So how do we do it? How is this accomplished? See, this is the thing I find missing in most talks about the spiritual life. How is it, what are the mechanics? How is this accomplished? Now, this first element of the chart, the cross, is phase one, salvation. This is comparable to what we had in the previous chart, phase one. But in the next sec- two sections, we're going to break down the spiritual life segment in terms of its options and mechanics. What happens after you are saved as we saw in our study of James, is that you're going to go through various tests. Adversity. Man is born to 
to trouble is to sparks fly upward. Man is born of woman and full of trouble, Job said. So we face various tests. God is going to test us in terms of growth. Now, James calls it tests of faith. And there it's not just whether or not you believe, but it's what you believe. See, you can't grow if you're not believing the right thing. See, faith is non-meritorious. It's the object of faith that matters. Faith in faith doesn't work. Faith in feelings doesn't work. Faith in emotion doesn't work. Faith in experience doesn't work. Faith in the promise of God, mixing faith with the promises of God, the beginning of the faith rest drill, that is what moves us forward in the spiritual life. We apply the doctrine that we have learned under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we get into tests of doctrine. Every situation, every time you have to make a decision, you need to, you need to be thinking, okay, what is God's thinking on this issue? Not this trivialized t-shirt, what would Jesus do kind of subjectivity. See, that's, the problem I have with stuff like that is as soon as most, pe- most Christians start answering the question, what would Jesus do? They don't have any content in their soul to know, so they just, they just go in looking for a little liver quiver and subjectivity again and find out where their emotions are, and then they'll decide that Jesus would do whatever they emotionally wanted to do. I mean, that's all it is, is emotional. They don't have enough knowledge of the Scripture to be able to think like Jesus. So how do they know what Jesus would do? You have tests of doctrine. Every decision is a test, whether you're going to apply divine viewpoint or human viewpoint, whether you're going to be walking by the Spirit, walking according to the flesh. It's an issue of volition. The issue in the spiritual life is are you going to decide to apply the Word of God and continue to grow all the way to spiritual maturity, or you're going to do it your way? If you go forward in the spiritual life, it's going to involve the following progression. As you grow, you're going to produce divine good under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. You'll be walking by means of God the Holy Spirit and filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. That produces divine good. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly, so you have capacity and quality of life. It is also going to produce in your life objective evidence that the plan and the will of God is good and perfect. That's what Romans 12.2 says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that the will of God is what? Good and acceptable. So you're going to demonstrate that in our life. Our life produces evidence. Then we have steadfast endurance. That's the hupomenes term. Notice mene, meno, same word. It is endurance. It is remaining in fellowship with Christ Enduring in the times of testing by applying doctrine. That, according to James 1, 2 through 4, leads to the adult spiritual life. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, your doctrine, produces endurance. And endurance will have its perfect, telios, maturity, is the idea there, not flawlessness, will have its perfect, its maturing result that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So that's the dynamic. It's energized by walking by the Spirit. But when we have that test of doctrine, decides we're going to handle it by our own procedures, our own methods, we're going to do it our way instead of God's way, then we go into the cycle of carnality. We're under control of sin nature, so we produce sin, we produce human good, we produce uh, temporal death. The end, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. It is self-destructive. It leads to weakness and instability. I don't care how strong you are, how successful you are, how much money you make, how great a family life you might have. The Scripture teaches that if you are not operating exclusively in the power of the Holy Spirit on the Word of God, then you are unstable. I don't care what your experience tells you. God says you're unstable. And that leads to spiritual regression. If you stay under the control of the sin nature long enough then that will lead to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. Now, this flow chart, the top cycle and the bottom cycle, relate to phase two spiritual life. The longer you spend walking by means of the Holy Spirit, learning the Word of God, letting it transform your thinking, responding correctly to the test, then you're going to stay in that top cycle and you're going to grow and mature and strengthen in life. The more you respond negatively under the control of sin nature, the more you stay in that bottom cycle and self-destruct. Ultimately, we will die physically if the Lord doesn't uh, return first. And this is phase three in the flow chart. We will die and we will go to the judgment seat of Christ after the rapture. 
At the judgment seat of Christ, all believers will be evaluated in terms of what they did during this life. Those that have stayed in fellowship, walked by means of God the Holy Spirit, been abiding in Christ, will receive rewards and inheritance for what they what has been produced in them through God the Holy Spirit. Failure leads to the loss of rewards and temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So this is the blueprint. This is the map of the spiritual life. Phase 1, phase 2, and phase 3 with a little more detail. It's the same plan. It's the same blueprint for everyone. So in terms of looking at the sanctification, we've looked at the basic terms. Secondly, we've looked at their three stages. Third point, we've seen the goal, which is glorification of God. God is glorified at phase three, at the judgment seat of Christ. We have maximum glorification of God when we produce rewards and have an inheritance. That's the culmination. We need to be living today with the future in mind. Every decision we make today impacts eternity. To put it another way, what you decide today determines what you'll be in eternity. The stress busters making decisions based on a personal sense of our eternal destiny. When we're making decisions today based upon what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ, we're beginning to come to grips with the personal sense of eternal destiny. This is the process of sanctification. Now, point four. What is the means? How does sanctification take place? Is it just by being good? Just by um, going to church? Just by making good decisions? Being moral? Or is there something else involved? Well, there's two elements involved, as we've seen many, many times. It is the Word of God working in tandem with the Spirit of God. It is not the Word of God distinct from the Spirit of God. When you emphasize the Word of God without the Spirit of God, that usually ends up in some sort of legalism or bibliolatry. If you emphasize the Spirit of God without emphasizing the Word of God, that usually ends up in some sort of mysticism or emotionalism because... They, folks tend to identify the Spirit of God with some sort of internal impression or intuition. And so you have to hold the two together. It is the Word of God, the objective principles, procedures, promises in the Word of God, the written Word of God that gives us the guidelines for spiritual growth. Now this has always been true. Not the Spirit of God, but the Word of God is always the key element. Let's look back at the Old Testament learn a few things. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. This is a, Deuteronomy 6 is the foundational passage for the Old Testament instruction. If you want to learn some things about, about teaching and the Bible's philosophy of education, and for some of you parents who are concerned about training up your children so that they uh, have a good understanding of the Word, then you need to go back and pay attention to some things here in Deuteronomy 6. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's the thinking part of the soul. Now the question we need to ask is how are they going to get there? How are they going to get on the inside? How are you going to get the Word of God inside your kids, inside of yourself specifically? Look at Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them diligently. That means indicates that this is a priority issue for you. You're going to make it a priority to teach your kids. Not just to talk to them, lecture them, but you're going to be, um, as we'll see, conversing with them, modeling it, everything. You shall teach them diligently. This is a priority for you. You have determined this is a priority of your life. You'll teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them. Now, Here we have the preposition bait. You shall talk of them, and that refers to the scripture, to, to, it means with them. When, when it's translated the way it is in New American Standard, where it says, and you shall talk of them, that indicates that you're talking about the doctrines. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew is a preposition bait, which just looks like a B. And it indicates talking with them. This is conversation with your kids. One of the most important things you can do as parents 
as that your kids are growing up, don't try to shelter them from everything. Now, the, the younger they are, the more you want to shelter them. But when the, as they get older and you face certain family crises or certain family decisions, bring them in on the decision-making process so that you can model for those kids how you utilize the Word of God in problem-solving. Talk about what are the spiritual issues here. When they have uh, things they have to do at school or, or they get into conflicts with their friends, talk about, well, what, what does the Bible say about this? Don't be lecturing them out. What does the Bible say about this, kids? Straighten up. No, sit down and say, okay, well, let's find out what God has said. What's the divine viewpoint on this situation? When you as an adult, when you and your wife, you and your husband are sitting down at the table, you're faced with some kind of decision, well, let's t- stop a minute and think about what the Bible says. About what is a divine viewpoint perspective on this? Your kids sitting there and they were watching, wow, you know, this doesn't just belong in Sunday school. You know, they're really doing it. They're trying to figure out what divine viewpoint is. They're going to get out the Bible and figure it out. So when you're making decisions about whether or not to buy a car and get in debt, you know, you're going to sit down, what does the Bible say about money and indebtedness and other things like that? So you're going to be communicating by modeling with your kids what that procedure is. Now, some of you don't want to do that because that really puts you on the hot seat as a parent. Number one, it presupposes you've got a little doctrine in your soul. Number two, it presupposes that you want to apply it. So we don't get too convicted. Let's go on to the, to the rest of the verse. It says, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. These are merisms, the figure of speech. In other words, it's the totality of your life. It's when you're sitting down, when you're walking, whatever you're doing, when you lie down, when you rise up. It includes every category of life. The Bible's not just for Sunday anymore. It's for the other six days as well, and nights. It's every decision. Verse 8, And you shall bind them, now the Jews took this literally and it's figuratively, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. This isn't talking about the phylacteries that you'll see uh, the Orthodox wearing, wrapping on their hands and their forehead. This is talking about the fact that, that your hand relates to what you do. This is an agrarian society. They worked with their hands. What you do, and on the frontals of your forehead, this is where you think. And the point was that the Word of God is going to affect what you do and what you think. And you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, this is going to characterize your family life. So the Word of God was taught to them. Then in Deuteronomy 17:18, now it shall come about when he sits. This is talking about the king. So it wasn't ju- the Bible wasn't just for the family; it was also for government leaders. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. So the king had to sit down and copy out for himself his own personal copy of the Old Testament. This is, now notice, those of you who have spent any time studying secular education theory, secular education theory would say that this is a lousy way to learn. But God said, this is what the king's supposed to do. God's saying, now, wait a minute. Modern education philosophy's got some problems. Notice, it's memorization and making a hand copy of something. Constant reminder and repetition. It's, it's, you know, the Bible emphasizes some kind of lecture teaching. It emphasizes copying. It's just the opposite of what what we find in our advanced educational system that produces all the the high scholastic grades and scores today, doesn't it? Let's move on. We're getting too detailed in the Scriptures, and it's too convicting. And one of the things you can do as parents is to get get your kids on some family project of memorizing Scripture together. I keep saying this over and over again. You can't mix faith with promises you don't know. And when you're out there in real life, on the job... And when you're uh, playing ball or playing sports or your kids are playing sports or they're in school, they don't have their Bible with them, uh, their doctrinal notebook, to run home and grab it and say, okay, what do I do here? It's got to be in the soul. You've got to have promises memorized to be able to apply them. So you can go down to the, one of the some Christian bookstore around here or get on the Internet and order uh, like the topical memory system for the navigators. It's a great thing to do. And make... Memorizing Scripture, a family project. Challenge each other. Come up with a reward system. There's nothing wrong with that. God's going to reward you at the judgment seat of Christ. So it's not legalism for you to reward your kid for memorizing 10, 15, 20 verses. 
Okay, Deuteronomy 17, 19 talks further about the king. It shall be with him, that is his doctrine, that he's going to keep this copy of the law with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life in order that he can learn to respect, that's the concept of fear here, respect the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of the law. Notice, respect for God comes as a result of careful obedience to the word of God. And then in Deuteronomy 31.10, Moses commanded them, saying at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of the remission of debts, this was at the end of the sabbatical year, at the Feast of Booze, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Get the whole nation together, and the priests will go out and read the Torah to everyone. They have to hear it over and over and over again. Notice the emphasis on continuous repetition and reminding, being reminded of what was in the Word of God. Well, that goes on through the rest of Deuteronomy 30, 31. Also in Psalm 1.1, we see the principle reiterated. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We're talking about the blessed man. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He is excited. He wakes up on Sunday morning and even before he gets that shot of caffeine, I'm going to get some doctrine this morning. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night continuously. Not every minute of every day. It's a totality thing. This is something that characterizes and excites the person with positive volition. We see this in Jesus' statement. Man shall not live by bread alone. It's a quote from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In his high priestly prayer, which we'll get to in John 17, the Lord said, prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. And it's not sphere, it's means. Sanctify them by means of truth. So how are you sanctified? What's the means? It's truth. Thy word. Very next sentence. Thy word is truth. The only way we're going to grow is by getting the word of God into our souls so that we can grow. And the way we do that is through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it's a dative of means there. And the past, there's a lot of similarities between Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Colossians 3, the command is not be filled. It is let the Word of Christ richly dwell within your heart. And so we see that it's the Word of God, the Word of Christ in Colossians 3, and you're filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who teaches us and fills up our soul with what? With doctrine. And that's the key to living the spiritual life. So that we see that throughout the Scripture, the emphasis is on learning the Word of God, and that then produces fruit. And fruit is not overt activity. It's not going out knocking on doors. It's not giving away your money. It's not teaching Sunday school. It's not, those things are good. They're functions of our priesthood, but that's not fruit. Fruit in Scripture always talks about inner character, inner transformation. It is talking about developing inside of us the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus emphasized this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23:25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside, are, for, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside the cup and the dish, they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In other words, you just want to clean up the outside of the dish, and on the inside, where, where you have motivations and where you have lust patterns, you just leave that alone. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish, that is, what he's talking about is cleaning up your soul, sanctification, so that the outside becomes clean also. It's an inside-out process. You start with changing the thinking, changing the inner character, and then the result is the outside overt activity is changed. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. There's our word, akarthasia again. Even so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, we'll stop there because we're running short of time, and this is a good place to stop. We'll come back next time and look more at what fruit consists when we're talking about fruit bearing, and that it is actually possible, according to several passages of Scripture, that you can 
have an abundance of fruit in your life and no overt activity. Now that's just going to shock too many Christians and too many pastors because they want everybody down at the church working. Now we need to do that and that's important. But that's not a function of the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're talking about in terms of fruit. So let's not get on a guilt motivation bandwagon here and get everybody doing and giving and everything else. Because the issue is if you change on the inside and you are truly transformed by Christ on the inside, then that other is going to be the result. But what you have in most churches is they want to focus on the results and get everybody doing the outside stuff, thinking that somehow that's going to change them on the inside. And they've got the process completely reversed. The issue is be transformed by the renewing of your mind under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then that is what will produce true Christian maturity and the overt activity of the priesthood that is important. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this time this morning to study Your Word. We thank You for its clarity. We thank You for the way You are working to produce in our lives. And Father, we thank You that we have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us and who teaches us and guides us. And we pray that we would be responsive to His ministry in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who is unsure of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. The issue is not church membership. It's not works. It's not moral reformation. The issue is Jesus Christ. Right now, the issue is whether or not you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you trust Christ as Savior, the Scripture promises that you have eternal life. You are Regenerated, you are born again, you're a new creature in Christ, and that can never be taken away from you. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, bring to our memory the things that we have studied, that we may be challenged by them, that we our thinking might be renewed, and that there might be true fruit production in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.